Shalom, this is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrachamim, Father of mercies, Father, we worship you, we love you, we adore you. Father, we give you all of our praise and all of our adoration. I ask God that as we open up your word today, that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that you will open up your voice to us and that we will receive from you in a mighty and powerful way. Father, let it be your words that are spoken and heard today. Uh, use me as a vessel for you, as a tool for your message. Let nothing of me be involved except that which you have ordained for this specific purpose. B'shem Yeshua Meshachinu, in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. And everyone says, Amen and Amen. Uh, this week we are in Parsha Noach from uh, Genesis 6, 9 through 11, 32. Um, we are at a very interesting time, realistically, in the Torah cycle as we are one Parsha, a total of six chapters, not even a full six chapters, but six chapters removed from creation or from the narrative of creation itself. Um, and the, the foundations of everything that God had intended for his creation. Um, we saw last week as we looked at Parsha Bereshit, the um, introduction of sin into God's creation, the introduction of corruption into God's uh, creation because of sin, because of our willingness to, uh, to give in to the lie of the enemy. For those that were here last week or listened to the podcast, last week, uh, you'll recall, we talked about how the, uh, the enemy's first lie to humanity was from Genesis 3, where he says that uh, if we eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the reason God doesn't want us to have that is not because we're going to die, but because God knows it will make us like him. And the reason that was the first lie is because if we go back two chapters to Genesis chapter 1, God says, let us make man in our image and our likeness. We were already created like God, not divine. We are not, don't get me wrong, we are not like many gods running around or anything. Um, but we are created in the image and likeness of God. We cannot become any more like God than what he created us to be. It doesn't work. And so the enemy knew that. And if we go forward to Isaiah and we see the narrative of uh, how the enemy fell from, uh, from heaven, from the graces of God, from his place as, uh, as an angel, he fell because he thought he could become God. He thought he could become like God and sit on the throne of God, and he was cast out of hell. And so he then projected his issues, <laughs> projected his issues upon humanity and said, oh, but if I couldn't do it, but you know what? You could be like God. Uh, and, and more directly, I think what he was saying was, if I can't have God, neither can you. The enemy was jealous of what God created us to be because what God created us to be was what he wanted to be, which was created in the image and likeness of God. And so as we look at that, what we see from Genesis uh, chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 6 is a total of 10 generations of people. So from Adam, uh, from Adam to Noah, there were a total of 10 generations. Now, a lot of these dudes live for a very long time. Um, you know, today we have a hard, we get amazed when we see a news report about somebody that's 110, 115 years old. Uh, in some cases, we get amazed because somebody hit a centennial that became 100 years old, uh, and we're dumbfounded at it. But, you know, back then they were living for seven, eight, nine hundred years like it was nothing. 
right? Um, I, I think it was something about 150 to, to 200 years, give or take, between Adam's death and the flood. Um, so just to put things in perspective for you there, a very short period of time considering the length of Adam's life and the length of the lives of those uh, who were alive then. So Noah is 10 generations removed from Adam. Noah is 10 generations removed from creation. And in 10 short generations, if you have your scriptures, open up to Genesis chapter 6. In 10 short generations, we come to verse 9 of chapter 6. These are the genealogies of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless among his generation. Noah continually walked with God. Uh, skipping to verse 11, now the earth was ruined before God and the earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth and behold, it was ruined because all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Now, let's look at the juxtaposition of Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 1, God looked at his creation and he says, it is good. He looked at his creation and he was pleased. He said, it is good. Ten generations later, in Genesis chapter 6, God saw the earth, and behold, it was ruined because all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. This is a very detrimental concept to humanity. This reality of sin, and, and anybody that, that has ever sinned, and don't pretend to lie to yourself and say you don't fall in that category, uh, anyone who has ever sinned, we understand rather quickly, especially as believers, I mean, not to say that non-believers don't recognize right and wrong and feel guilt because of, of wrong actions and what have you, but as believers more so. As believers, there should be a sensitivity to sin and to the, the consequence and reactions of sin, um, the counter-reaction of sin. And so as a believer, when we sin, we recognize the anguish and the pain. We recognize the guilt and the sorrow that goes along with it. Um, and so for 10 generations post Adam, this, the, the idea of sin and the, the influx of sin in humanity just continued to grow and grow and grow. And there appeared to be, at least as far as the text goes, there appears to be really no concern whatsoever to the consequence of sin and to the realities of what the corruption of sin can do to our hearts and our lives. And so God was just fed up with it. He was done. And so he tells Noah, uh, and the scripture says that Noah was the only one found righteous in his generation. And the sages argue back and forth about this. If you go and look at the Talmud, it's really interesting looking at some of the arguments on there, which by the way, it's just a giant volume, you know, whole volumes and volumes upon volumes of arguments. Uh, two, where there's two rabbis, there's three opinions. Um, and so we're really good at arguing. That's what we do the best. Um, and so the, the Talmud is just a whole series of arguments. And, and people will argue, and then because they've already argued in their name, then they decide, okay, well, it's time for me to argue in somebody else's name. So you'll see, you know, Rabbi so-and-so says da-da-da-da, and then Rabbi so-and-so says in the name of Rabbi so-and-so da-da-da-da, and they just kind of go back and forth. Well, in the, the Talmud and, and the sages are, are arguing back and forth over Noah, and, and kind of the directions, there's two main directions. One is, is that Noah may have been one of the most righteous men that's ever lived in creation, because in his generation he was the only one found righteous. Uh, the other argument is that Noah could not have amounted to much of anything in another generation. That Noah was only considered righteous because his generation was so bad. They were so far gone uh, that, that uh, he, was, uh, he looked like the good guy out of every... Just think about the political system right now and where we're at. I mean, we can quickly see how that one tallies up. Um, it's kind of funny now that I think back to 
to modern day realities. But the, 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 the reality is, is it really doesn't matter. None of that matters. What we do know is that Noah was considered righteous in God's eyes. Noah was considered righteous for one purpose. He was considered righteous to bring salvation and restoration to the creation of God. All right? Sin had completely overtaken humanity. The world was being destroyed because of sin. And so God said, okay, well, Noah is the most righteous man alive. Uh, in him, I see the light of life. In him, I see my own presence in his life. So through this man, we're going to wipe out everything else, wipe the slate clean. And through this man and his descendants, uh, humanity will be recreated. And so in verse uh, chapter 7, verse one says, then I said to, to Noah, come you and all your household into the ark for you and uh, for you only do I perceive as righteous before me and this generation. Skipping to verse six. Now, Noah was 600 years old when the flood came water upon the uh, when the flood came waters upon the land. So Noah, his sons, his wife and his son's wives entered the ark because of the flood water. Uh, of these clean animals and unclean animals, the flying creatures and everything that crawls on the ground, two by two, they came to Noah into the ark, male and female, just as God commanded Noah. Um, and then we move on to verse 21 of chapter 7. Uh, verse 21 says, if I can get there, I hit the wrong button. Verse 21 of chapter 7 says, uh, all flesh perished, those that crawled on the land, the flying creatures, live, livestock, wild animals, all creatures that swarmed upon the land and all hum, humankind, everything that had the breath of the spirit of life in its nostrils, everything dry, everything on dry land died. So he wiped out all existence that was upon the surface of the ground, everything from people to livestock to crawling creatures and to flying creatures of the sky. They were wiped out off the land, only Noah and those with him in the ark survived. The waters overpowered the land for 150 days. Notice how this is worded. He makes it a point to say all living creatures that breathe the breath of life. The breath of life is the presence of the Ruach within us. All right, Not in the sense of Acts chapter 2, the, the power of the Ruach, but it's the presence of the Ruach within us, the, the Ruach Chaim, the breath of life. And so he says, everything that had the breath of the spirit of life in its nostrils, everything on dry land died. So he saves Noah, he saves Noah's wife, Noah's three sons and their wives, and, and the few animals that were brought on the, the, the ark. There were uh, two of every unclean and seven of every clean. Um, part of the reason why there were seven as an odd number was because immediately after he gets off the ark, what does he do? Make sacrifices. There's got to be an odd man out for sacrifices, uh, just for the sake of there not being odd mans out in other regards. Um, but as this is going on, we see that, that God had this... Uh, this desire to recreate humanity in such a way that, or not per se recreate, but to reestablish humanity through righteousness. See, he created Adam and Eve for the distinct purpose of righteousness. We were created to be perfect in his presence. We chose to allow the corruption of sin into our lives. And so sin just took on a whole new life within creation and destroyed uh, creation itself. It brought the souls of humanity down to disparity. Um, men were doing all kinds of despicable things and so on and so forth. And so God decides, okay, we're going to wipe the slate clean. We're going to start fresh with Noah. And from Noah and his descendants will come 
a reestablishment, a restoration of creation. In other words, from righteousness will come a restoration of creation. Now we see it's not even one generation removed uh, from Noah that we see um, sin again, right? His own son comes in and, and makes fun of him and, and you have everything that goes on. Well, then that brings about Canaan and the Canaanite people and everything that happened with Israel. And we see the way this, all, this whole picture starts to come together uh, as we move through the scriptures. But in verse 20 of chapter 8, after they came out of the ark, <clears throat> after they came out of the ark, the waters had dried up. They're on ground again. Verse 20 of chapter 8 says, Then Noah built an altar to Adonai, and he took of every clean domestic animal and every clean flying creature, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. When Adonai smelled the smooth, soothing aroma, Adonai said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, man even though the inclination of his heart of hum, humankind is evil from youth, nor will I ever smite all living creations as I've done. And we skip again to chapter 9, verse 3. Every crawling thing that is alive will be food for you. This is Adonai speaking, as are the green plants. I have now given you everything, only flesh with its life, that is, its blood, you must not eat. Surely your lifeblood will I avenge. Notice he says, your lifeblood will I avenge. Not your lifeblood can anybody avenge, but your lifeblood I will avenge. From every animal and from every person will, <clears throat> excuse me, will I avenge it. For from every person's brother, I will avenge that person's life. The one who sheds human blood, by, human will, by a human will his blood be shed. For in God's image, he created uh, or he made humanity. I say all of that to bring us to what I believe to be one of the most important realities of this week's Parsha. Um, I am a, a huge, huge, huge lover of digging through the Torah. Uh, for this distinct purpose of finding Messiah, all right? Because you can see Messiah throughout the, the scriptures, throughout the Torah, over and over and over again, and numerous characters throughout the Torah, and, and the Tanakh in general, numerous characters, numerous individuals throughout the, the Tanakh in general are in one way or another a foreshadowing of Messiah, Right? Uh, if you look at Adam, he was a foreshadowing Messiah in the first man. You look at uh, Moses, you look at Abraham, uh, you look at David, you look at Joseph. Joseph, Joseph uh, I believe, was the only uh, individual in the Tanakh who was the foreshadowing of both comings of Messiah because he was the suffering servant and the victorious king. Uh, and so we see the foreshadowing of both Messiahs and the one individual in two different aspects of his life. But here we see a foreshadowing in this week's Parsha, a foreshadowing Messiah in the man of Noah. And a lot of people don't really uh, dig into this. They don't think about this concept with Noah. They, don't, they, they care more about the flood and the restoration of humanity and so on. But very little time is spent on the idea of Noah as a foreshadowing of Mashiach. Um, and here's, here's where it comes down to Noah being the foreshadowing of Mashiach. We know scripturally sin entered through who? Through Adam, right? And in Romans, we'll read it in a minute. In Romans, Paul says that sin entered the world through one man, right? And in Romans, he says what? that it's through one man that restoration, that salvation, that redemption is brought. So here we see Noah as a foreshadowing Messiah because Noah is the foreshadowing of that one man who brings restoration into the world. See, it was through, through Adam, the one man, that sin was entered into the world and in turn, 10 generations later, through Noah, God gives us the image of Messiah and that through this one man, the entire foundation of creation was restored. Through this one man who was considered righteous among his generation. Now we know Yeshua, the text, the, the, the Bible speaks over and over again about how Yeshua was perfect, he was righteous, he was spotless. Now that's not to equate Noah to being Yeshua, to being spotless or, or righteous in that sense. 
But he was righteous among his generation, just as Yeshua was righteous among his generation. And so here we have Noah who is brought onto the ark for the single purpose of being used by God to bring redemption and salvation and restoration for, for creation, uh, which was being destroyed because of the corruption of sin that was brought through one man. And this restoration could only be brought through one man. He couldn't have taken an entire tribe. Uh, I mean, it's God. He could have done whatever he wanted, but... For the sake of the narrative, he couldn't have taken an entire tribe or an entire nation or an entire people group. He took one man because sin entered the world through one man and it takes one man to redeem the world, to restore the world, to bring the world back to what God had created us to be. Like so, we go forward to, as I said, to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Now in Romans 5, Moses, or, uh, sorry, Paul is dealing primarily with Adam. Uh, as the, the first man and the man through whom sin comes through. But he says in verse 12, So then just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, in the same way death spread to all men because uh, all sinned. For up until the Torah, sin was in the world, but sin does not count as sin when there is no law. In other words, the Torah tells us what sin is. Sin existed because God's Torah was from the foundation of creation since it was spoken through uh, the, the person of Yeshua who is whom through which creation came about. So Torah has always existed. The commandments, the ideas of what is sin has always existed. But until it was something that we had access to, there was nothing to call out sin in our lives. For up until the Torah, sin was in the world, but sin does not count as sin when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in a manner similar to the violation of Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gracious gift is not like the transgression. For if man, many died because of the transgression of one man, how much more did the grace of God overflow to many through the gift of one man, Yeshua the Messiah? Moreover... The gift is not like what happened through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment from, the, from one violation resulted in condemnation. But on the other hand, the gracious gift following many transgressions resulted in justification. For if by the one man's transgression, death reigned through the one, how much more shall those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one, Messiah Yeshua. So then, through the transgression of one, condemnation came to all men. Likewise, through the righteousness of one, came righteousness of life to all men. For just as through the dis disobedience of one man, many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, many will be set right forever. So through one man, Adonai, uh, through one man Adam, uh, sin enters uh, creation and begins to bring corruption and destruction upon creation and upon the world. Through one man, in this case Yeshua, God provided true redemption, salvation, and restoration for creation. Likewise, going back to Genesis, through one man, sin enters the world. That man is Adam. Uh, a mere ten generations later, sin had overtaken creation in such a way that all of creation was considered destroyed and fallen. Through one man, Noah, God brought redemption, salvation, and restoration for creation. So we see the foreshadowing of Yeshua in, in Noah as being that one man through whom redemption and restoration comes. Now, there is very obviously a clear distinction between the salvation brought to Noah and his family and the salvation brought through Yeshua. But there's a foreshadowing image. There's this, this idea that sets us up for what Messiah was going to do so that as we read through Scripture, 
If we were living in the, the first century or, or just before, as we read through Scripture, we would be able to see Messiah because we were so rooted and grounded in the Word that we would be able to see Messiah because it plays out exactly as the Torah says it was it would, exactly as the Tanakh says it would. We see all of these images of Messiah throughout the Tanakh, all of these foreshadowings of Messiah, and because of that, the picture starts to come together, and we start to see Yeshua for who He is and what he came to do. Now, where it gets really unique and interesting here is as we go back to Genesis chapter 9, uh, beginning with verse 4, it says, Only flesh with its life, that is, its blood, you must not eat. Surely your lifeblood will I avenge. From every animal and from every person will I avenge it. From every person, uh, person's brother will I avenge that person's life. The one who sheds human blood by a human will his blood be shed. For in God's image he made humanity. Here what God is saying is that, and the reason, this is, the reason this is so important, when we talk about the life for a life concept, everybody gets uptight, right? Oh, grace over law, it's not that anymore, turn the other cheek, da-da-da, right? And, and that's 100% true. It is turn the other cheek. You are supposed to do that. You don't just you know, pull out a sword or a gun and slice somebody up because they hurt your feelings, right? We get on with life. But the reality of this is that the, the whole basis for a life for a life the whole basis for the, uh, the, the blood guilt that goes along with that is because the presence, the, the lifeblood, the life force, which is in us because of the presence of God, the Spirit of God within us, is found in our life force, in our blood. And so what uh, God is saying is when somebody kills somebody, when somebody murders somebody, what they're doing is actually removing a, uh, a piece of God, if you would, from creation. Not just in that we are creating His image and likeness, but in the reality that He dwells within us because His Spirit is the breath of life that we breathe. And you got to understand, that's whether you're a believer or not. That Spirit becomes something so much more as we, after we become a believer. But that doesn't mean that the, the Spirit of the breath of life is not in a non-believer. Um, we've got to grasp that. We've got to understand that. That doesn't, again, that doesn't mean that they are saved just because that Spirit of the breath of life is in them. But that Spirit of the breath of life is ultimately what draws us to Messiah. And so the spirit of the breath of life is in somebody, whether they're a believer or not, whether they walk with God or not. And when somebody is murdered, that spirit of the breath of life is removed from the world. It is destroyed from the world. And so God says, a life for a life. If you take one, yours will be taken likewise. Now, sin allows what into our lives? Death. The consequence of sin is death. Now, we know this is an eternal discussion. This isn't, this is like uh, the serpent speaking to, to Eve. Oh, well, God knows you're not going to immediately die. You're not just going to drop dead right here and now. It's, it's, it's a future death. It's an eternal death that sin brings. And so what the, uh, the, the word is saying here, uh, I believe, and I think the image of Yeshua in the uh, foreshadowing uh, through Noah and everything, I think this all comes together with this very important concept, is that when we allow sin into our lives, when we choose to fall short of the glory of God, we are allowing death to enter our lives. We are allowing an eternal death to enter into our lives. We are literally murdering ourselves. An eternal murder, but a murder nonetheless. We are literally murdering ourselves. And the scripture says it is a life for a life. We have committed murder by allowing sin into our lives. And so it's a life for a life, but whose life is it being given in place of ours but the person of Messiah Yeshua? There is still a life being taken for our life to be redeemed. That life was the life of Messiah Yeshua. He offered his life so that each and every person that turns their heart to the Lord 
will have opportunity for restoration and salvation. So that ultimately through the one man who brings restoration, salvation into the world, the curse that was brought by the one man who brought sin into the world will be removed from our lives. He gave his life as the life for our life. Now, I want you to think about that. As Paul says in Romans, in later parts of Romans, Paul deals with that very concept of, of allowing sin back into our lives once we become believers, and that every time we do so, in essence, what we are doing uh, is it's as if we're putting Yeshua back on that stake again, back on that cross again every single time. Now, think about that. When my children do something that I ask them not to do, it breaks my heart. Literally, I mean, if, if, if you're a parent, you recognize the pain and the anguish. Um, I mean, you also recognize the anger because you just want to smack them. You really can't just make their head spin either. That doesn't work out very well. It doesn't really solve the problem. Um, but, but because of that, we, we at least have some minuscule idea of the pain and the anguish we put on the heart of God every time that we fall short of His glory, every time we fall short of the righteousness that He is creating within us. And likewise... We are literally, in a figurative way, literally putting Yeshua back on the stake every time we sin. We are asking for the blood to be poured out upon us again to redeem us. Now, that doesn't mean that He is literally being put back on the stake. But in God's eyes, that's what we're telling Him is, we just need you to get back up there again. I know this is once for all, but I couldn't walk right with you, so just climb back up there one more time. Okay, okay, I know it's been three months, God, but I need you up there again. Can you make this happen again? The reality is, is we are in a restorative process. We are being restored. One man brought sin into the world, death and destruction. Through one man, the person of Yeshua brings restoration of life, recreation of life, a restoration of righteousness which we were created to live in. And it's not an easy process. It's not a fast process. It's not a, uh, a process that's... Uh, even though his sacrifice is once for all, the process of restoration is not once. It is a lifetime of processing. It is a lifetime of learning. It is a lifetime of having little things hacked away from our lives. But when we look at Scripture, when we follow, especially as we follow the Torah cycle, and we look into the realities of the Word that we're reading, and we see the image and the foreshadowing of Messiah in the text, and the picture starts to come together and we start to see the total reality of what Yeshua did for us, of who He is, and of what He desires for us. Yeshua provided His life. He gave up His life that we could have life in His presence for eternity. In the same sense, in the person of Noah, God provided a restoration for righteousness through the one righteous man that was alive, he provided a restoration of righteousness. Now we know just like with salvation, we still sin. Just like with that concept of us walking out our salvation and still falling short of the glory, the reality is, is it wasn't even one full generation. Noah's own son, Noah wasn't even dead yet. Noah's own son had already reintroduced sin into the world. And just like the promise that God made to Noah that he will never destroy all of creation again in that way, God has promised us that there will be a restoration of the remnant. Just like Noah was a remnant, there will be a restoration of the remnant 
of those who are righteous and holy. And this righteousness this time is not one found pre-tar, it is one found only in the blood of the Lamb. It is a righteousness that is provided by God, not attained on our own personal account. It is provided only by the blood of the Lamb. And those who have cried out upon the name of Messiah, those who have received salvation in the blood of the Lamb, those who have been immersed for the remission of sin, those who are infilled with the Ruach HaKodesh, will experience the salvation that is brought in the eternal sense from the work of the one man who has provided restoration, who has provided redemption, who has provided salvation. And unlike in the days of Noah, there will not be a reintroduction of sin. It will be done. It will be destroyed. It will be over. The world will be rolled away. Heaven and earth will be rolled away. And the new heaven, the new Jerusalem will descend upon the earth. And all of those who were not bought by the blood of the Lamb will spend eternity suffering a death that will never end. But those who have received salvation will experience an eternity in the literal presence of God. Something that even as a believer, I could never fully grasp and imagine until I'm there. But it's something I want to be a part of. It's something I long to see each of you a part of. It's something I long to see the entire world a part of. As a Jewish believer, it breaks my heart when I think about the fact that I can look at the Torah and I can see Messiah in so many different places. But my family and my friends in the traditional Jewish world and 2,000 years worth of uh, traditional rabbinic-based Judaism cannot look at the exact same text and see Messiah, not in the person of Yeshua, not in the way that we see him, not revealed in the nature that we see him because of the blinders that are upon our eyes. But I want you to understand this. We are a Messianic Jewish synagogue. We are a synagogue made up of Jews and non-Jews alike. And our distinct purpose is to drive them to jealousy for their God, to be a part of the removal of the blinders from the eyes of the Jewish world so that when they read the text of the Torah, they will see Messiah. They will become a part of those being restored and redeemed by the one who offered his life to destroy sin and corruption forever. You and I are, in essence a part of a Noah generation. We are a part of a generation of what is left of the body of Messiah. If you look around us in the world that we live in, the body of Messiah, for the most part, is obsolete in the way we impact the world around us. But we're a part of a Noah generation. We're a part of a remnant that God has called to continue to cry out, the floods are coming, the floods are coming. But this time, it's not a flood in the sense of destruction. I believe it's a flood in the sense of the overwhelming power of the Ruach HaKodesh upon the body of Messiah in a way that lives will be turned in a blinking of the eye to the heart of, of the Lord, will be restored to Him. You know, we want to talk about revival. The body of Messiah is longing, crying for revival. I, I, I see churches all the time that have signs, their, their marquee signs say, uh, Revival, uh, you know, December 1st through 7th or whatever, right? I'm not really sure how you 
schedule a revival? Does God have Google calendars that it, He's up to date with what we want Him to do? I don't know how that works, but, but I know that people are hungry for revival. But I think that our mindset as believers in this world of what revival truly is, is skewed. Revival isn't some tent meeting out in a field somewhere with loud music and, and uh, people jumping around and having fun and, and whatever. Revival is the presence and the power of the Spirit of God in the lives of His people in a way that it touches people's hearts and lives without us ever saying anything. That people are healed and touched because of what He's doing through us. Not because of who we are, but because of what He's doing through us. And I want you to understand that all of this is brought about because there was one man who allowed sin to enter the world. But God loved us so much that He provided one man to redeem all of humanity from the destruction, the despair of sin itself, of the corruption of the enemy, so that we could impact the world. Noah was not commanded to go and to preach salvation. He was commanded to get on a boat. And I'm sure he asked a bunch of questions, or was asked a bunch of questions. You know, what's this big thing you're building? What are, what are these rains you're talking about? We don't know what this is. This doesn't make floods. What is that? But Noah wasn't commanded to go preach. He wasn't commanded to go and make disciples of all nations. He was commanded to build an ark and to be a part of God's salvation of humanity for the sake of righteousness. But you and I, having received the salvation that is brought by the better restoration of that one man in the person of Yeshua, we have been given a very distinct calling, a very distinct command from the Lord to go and to make disciples of all men, immersing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Ruach HaKodesh. And I believe that's the revival that God has in store for His people. And I believe that through that, and through that power of God that will flow in His people, there will be a change in this world. We will, I don't, I don't have some odd concept that every human being alive is going to accept Messiah. I would love to see that happen. It's part of my prayer. But, uh, but I do believe that God has placed each of us here for a distinct purpose, and that is to be a part of what God is doing in restoration, to be used by God to bring restoration to other people's lives, to be a part of that remnant like Noah, bringing a restoration of righteousness. And it can only happen because of the blood of our Messiah, who is the one man who provided his life so that there would be a restoration of righteousness in humanity. Amen. Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, we glorify you and we adore you. Father, we thank you that as we open your word, throughout your word, there are all of these breadcrumbs, all of these little roadmap markers that direct us straight to Messiah. We thank you that we can read your word and see that there is no question that Yeshua is Messiah, that Yeshua did provide salvation. And we can see that over and over and over again in your Tanakh, in the Old Testament leading to Messiah, that you gave us an example after example after example of what Messiah would do and what he's coming back to do again. Father, I pray that you not only open our hearts and humble us in a way that we can better receive 
the power and the presence of Yeruach HaKodesh in our lives, but that you will open our hearts and bring us a humility in such a way that we will be willing to be part of the, the remnant going forth into the world around us, shouting that the floods are coming, shouting that salvation is here, shouting that you are a God who saves, who delivers, who redeems, who restores, but not shouting with our voice, shouting with the presence of the living God of all creation, the God who has provided our redemption, shouting with the power of the Ruach HaKodesh flowing through us. Father, use us to impact the world around us and those that we come into contact with every single day. Awaken our hearts to the reality that it is okay to be a part of a remnant. That it is okay to have the world look at us and see that we're different. That it is okay to be different. That this is what you want us to be, set apart, righteous, and holy. That the world looks at us and wants what we have. Father, I pray for your strength, for your encouragement in these days that we live in that you'll speak boldly into our hearts and our lives as we walk out your salvation and restoration in our day-to-day lives. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen. Amen.